Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.com. .edu/podcast I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body all having to do with rock and roll music If you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. It's amazing the kind of sounds you can get with just two people and a drum machine. Case in point, The Kills. I'm Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We welcome the duo of Allison Mosshart and Jamie Hintz to perform live in the studio. And we'll review new albums from The Queen of Pop and The Night Tripper. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Big Money by Rush, and there was big money at stake this week in a Los Angeles district court ruling in a case that has been lingering for over a decade. Jim, you and I have been covering this story off and on for that long, it seems like. There was a class action suit brought against Clear Channel and now Live Nation by ticket buyers back in the early 2000s in the Denver and Los Angeles, as well as 20 other markets around the country saying that they were being gouged for ticket prices by this new concert entity that had basically come to dominate the concert industry in North America. Well, the lawsuits called Live Nation a monopoly, and we've never hesitated to use that word as observers of this industry. Right, and the judge basically said there's no merit to the idea that there is a monopoly here based on the testimony that he was hearing. The key part of the testimony for the plaintiffs was the expert witness, a University of Wyoming economist, 
who basically showed that the ticket prices for Live Nation shows were much higher than the ticket prices for independent concerts. However, the judge says there's more factors than just a disparity in ticket prices to indicate whether or not there's a monopoly here. He was saying, you know, you've got to gauge the level of the act, you've got to gauge the size of the show. None of these factors were brought in. So basically some loose testimony here from the plaintiffs to make their case. Now, the judge is telling the two sides you have to get together and figure out how you want to proceed. Because in two of the major cases, worth about $90 million in damages, he found no merit at all. There's about 20 remaining class action suits at various markets around the country. He's saying you have three weeks to get together, figure out how you want to proceed. But Live Nation, based on this ruling, is, is thinking they're in the clear. It's business as usual. As their CEO, Michael Rapino, said, we refuse to be held hostage by frivolous class action lawsuits, and now we've been vindicated. Greg, our life may be devoted to listening to recorded music and going to live shows, but nobody lives by music alone. I will admit a fondness for programming the DVR to watch a couple of TV shows. Justified, Walking Dead, and Mad Men. Season 5 opener last week. Spoiler alert, there's a great scene that stops the show in this two-hour episode. At Don's 40th birthday party, Don Draper, the main character, his new wife, does this burlesque dance to the tune of this early 60s French hit called Zooby Zooby Zoo, which was originally recorded by an English singer, Gillian Hills, but is probably better known for a soundtrack version. The film was called The Millionaires. Sophia Loren sang it, and George Martin, pre-Beatles, produced it. The actress who sings it on Mad Men, Jessica Paré, does a tremendous version. Everybody was talking about it right after the show. It went up for sale as a download on iTunes. It soon will be available on Amazon. And this is the coolest part. AMC's website, the the show is on the AMC network, is going to make it available as vinyl. Mm. This is a cool, what, what, what the French called yay-yay pop, part of that Serge Gainsbourg, Jane Birkin, Bridget Bardot music, incredibly sexy, kind of naughty, risque. It's a wonderful tune, and it just goes to underscore a frequent story we're doing on Sound Opinions, that there are now many other ways for cool music to get out there besides that old-fashioned thing called radio. Let's take a listen to this single. By the way, the English translation is, Oh, you kiss kiss. Un, deux, trois, quatre. Que c'est doux Ooh, ooh, 
Zooby Zooby Zoo. I just love saying that, Jim. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> from the AMC show Mad Men on Sound Opinions. Sound Opinions, and that is the lead track from the most recent album by The Kills, Blood Pressures. The band is a duo, Alison Mosshart on vocals, Jamie Hintz on guitar, and it's just those two elements, along with a drum machine, that provide this entire sound. It's a gritty, soulful, blues-punk mix that they've perfected over the course of 12 years and four records. Alison sometimes takes time off to pair up with another famous minimalist, Jack White, in that band The Dead Weather. But there's nothing quite like the chemistry this Florida punk makes with the British blues fan Jamie Hintz. It's so cool that many fans assume the two are more than just bandmates. However, Hintz is actually married to model Kate Moss. You've heard of her, Greg. The Kills joined us recently in the studio to perform songs from Blood Pressures as well as an unexpected cover. And we began by finding out how fate brought these two cross-continental musicians together. There's a lot of wonderful stories about how you two first met. Apocryphal. I mean, it sounds almost like a, an accident that is almost too good to be true. But the story goes, Allison, that you were staying at a friend's apartment in London and heard Jamie's guitar playing through the wall, and lo and behold, you met, and thus began a decade-long run <laughs> of albums. It's yeah. absolutely true, apart yeah. from the only false piece of information is she heard it through the floor rather than the wall. <laughs> that's... Or the ceiling, your floor, yeah. my ceiling. My yeah. floor. And Allison, you were on tour with yeah. your band from Florida, mm-hmm. which was a punk band, and you were a teenager at the time, is that right? I was, I think, yeah, I was probably maybe that, I might have been around 18 or something at that point when yeah. I was there and I heard him or I met him. But right then and there, you kind of knew, here's, here's my future, here's what's going to happen next? Well, I mean, it kind of went on, you know, I met Jamie, I, I toured in England a lot, actually, and mm-hmm. I, I came back a lot, and... um and we became friends, you know. We started talking about music, and we started. He lent me a four track to take away on the road with me, and I'd come back and bring him everything I recorded. And I think it was kind of that sort of interaction between us, t- sitting and talking about music, and him teaching me things, and that made me really want to come back and start a band with him. But for years, you know, for maybe a year and a half or so, we sent tapes back and forth through the mail between Florida and London. People don't realize you had to communicate via the postal service before the internet was actually a viable. <laughs> it used to be this thing called this mail, thing. Yeah. yeah. And it was way more exciting to receive a box in the mail, obviously full of great things and music, um, than it is to get an email. 
yeah, you know, it's super say, exciting. And I think if you ever do that in your life or that's happened to you, it makes you want to do it again and again and again because there's actually nothing better. It's mm-hmm. really fun. So you're trading these tapes back and forth. Was the essence of that first Kills album on those tapes? I mean, uh, Keep on Your Mean Side, was was that where the groundwork was laid or some experimentation about the direction of where, where the music was going to go? Not really. I think we got that out of our system, really, haven't we? We've done a d- demo with four or five songs on that was pre, pre-Kills. Tell me what you've done yourself I would like to know Listen, I'm curious about your aesthetic, and this comes from partly having to visit my parents in Florida sometimes. Was there something about Florida that made you want to be a punk? I don't know. I haven't figured out Florida so much. I think it's, I always think it's the same as growing up in any small town and there being nothing to do that you have to invent your own fun, and it's always from those weird places where people come, you know, mm-hmm. that they've had to kind of work extra hard to get out of there. I think that's what it was like. I mean, my friends that when I was growing up, we all were really into art and skateboarding. And from that, we all picked up an instrument and tried to learn how to play one, you know, and um, it was, we're just trying to find something to do, really. And that got us straight out of Florida mm, yeah. and all over the place, you know, so it was like, this is the best. <laughs> But you don't have that support system that you would have in a place like Chicago or a hipster little place like Portland or Montreal or, you know. And maybe there's not that support system, but there was at that time. There was the punk scene, and that was the Mm. hugest support system of all. I mean, Mm. there was books like, you can stay at my house. You can eat here. You you know, it's like everybody actually did around the world and even in England and Europe and America. I mean, we all got to know each other because we were all on the same journey, you know, and it was pre-internet and pre-all these things is very word of mouth. I mean, hipster, hipster towns generally breed hipsters, don't they? Yeah. And um, areas like Florida, there's a big difference between freaks and hipsters. And I think, you know, people like Iggy Pop, he's from Florida. Right? I mean, it's kind of, if you sort of stick out like a sore thumb in Florida, you know, you're, you're a proper freak. You yeah. Have to, you know. Yeah, Iggy lives there now. Yeah, uh, I think... You he know, isn't from there, but Marilyn Manson's from yeah, there. Yeah, yeah well, he was you from know, Michigan, if wasn't you've got he? A, yeah, a crowd Michigan. Of, a crowd yeah. of hipsters, it's just they're just trying to... Uh, hipster each other probably I like this I think there's a book here Cod. Yeah, Freaks versus Hipsters <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> coffee table book from Sound well, of it's Opinions. funny because I, I was quite interested in a lot of those you know amazing rock stars rock and roll icons are actually pretty nerdy yeah underneath it all you know like Iggy Pop James Osterberg mm-hmm. Mick Jagger total nerd you know as you can see it, it's kind of you, you wouldn't he wouldn't have, he wouldn't dare himself to do half the amazing things he does if he wasn't a bit like a fish out of water. Mm-hmm, right. What have you got to lose? Kind of attitude. Plenty to talk about, but I know you got some uh, some acoustic guitars. This is going to be kind of cool because we're going to have the kills kind of stripped down acoustic here. Yeah. But you can play heart as a beating drum, which we've never played before on acoustically. So who knows? Could go wrong, but let's try it. <laughs> yeah.
That was Heart is a Beating Drum, performed by The Kills, live on Sound Opinions. We'll talk more with Jamie Hintz and Allison Mosshart in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, the material girl gets to buy it, burn it, or trash it.
Back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis, and my partner is Greg Cott, and you've been listening to our conversation with Allison Mosshart and Jamie Hintz, together known as The Kills. That was a bit of a track called You Are a Fever from the 2008 disc Midnight Boom. They recorded that album, as well as No Wow in 2006 and the new Blood Pressures, all at a recording studio called Key Club Studio in Benton Harbor, Michigan. I've been there, Greg. It's a small town. Just 10,000 people a couple of hours outside of Chicago on the lake, and it was once the former hub of the Whirlpool Corporation. Not exactly the place where you'd expect a Florida singer and a British guitarist to make beautiful music together. So during our chat with Jamie and Allison, we had to ask, why Benton Harbor? Well, the place, the place itself is kind of irrelevant, really, I think. Hmm. You know, in the sense that it's not like we go there to soak up the atmosphere of Benton Harbour or torture ourselves with a lack of atmosphere. There's a studio there that's like a home from home and mm. kind of don't like talking about it because it's the best kept secret in the world, really. <laughs> said other people book it. Yeah, people you know, it's it. happened to us before where we've yeah. been like really singing its praises and then um, phoned up to go in there and it's like, oh no, we're totally booked. <laughs> <laughs> But, I thought um, there was going to be this, you know, Muscle Shoals kind of story, or you know, well, the, the atmosphere of Benton Harbor <laughs> draws the kills. Yeah, I in a, like in the a way, it's important. The atmosphere of Benton Harbor is important in a way because it's um, it suffered a lot from the riots of, of the eighties, was it? Anyway, it's, it kind of ended up as a pretty much close to a ghost town, mm-hmm. and um, and it's you know gradually been building itself up. When we first went there, sort of. Seven years ago or something, it was uh, you could easily walk for ten minutes without seeing a window. You know, everything was boarded <laughs> up or derelict, uh-huh. and you could really see that the place had been cheated and forgotten about. There's a great atmosphere and a sort of strength in that. I think when you're hanging out in a town like that, and I like the fact that there's nothing, there's no distractions there. There's no hipster pubs or clubs or anything. Yeah, mm-hmm. there's nothing else to do but work. No, in fact, the the only real that place that all the kids hang out because there's nowhere open late, so they all hang out at the uh, 24-hour supermarket. Myers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Myers. Yeah. I also quite like Myers. <laughs> yeah. That's a good uh, supermarket. Oh, that's a good one. We're sponsored by Myers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're not. Well, I think you guys also use that studio as an instrument in a lot of ways. You know, in the way you put these records together. I really see you, the two of you, in, in more of an avant-garde punk tradition you know going back to a, a group like suicide or something like that or yeah or big black which had a drum machine as a drummer with this kind of noise melody over the top but hearing you strip down here you know i can hear where some people heard you as kind of a primal blues revival thing going on you know especially in the early days i think there was some of that thrown at you for in- me the, the blues figures in a lot it's the first time really where you know recorded music was getting to the masses really and uh, it's made a massive impact on rock and roll music. Mm-hmm. But for me, I mean, you mentioning Big Black is pretty impressive. I think probably Suicide as well. A lot of, you know, they came out with the, the there was this sort of punk attitude. And I'm sure a lot of the reason for Big Black not, not having a drum kit 
was that um, they probably didn't have cars. You know, they didn't have a bloke. That, they didn't have a kid that could drive a drum <laughs> yeah, kit around. Yeah, right. And that was sort of the reality for us. You know, it was we were thrown together. We didn't have any money. We didn't have this kind of. We weren't afforded the luxury of uh, oh, let's get a keyboard player and a mm-hmm. and a drummer. We thought we wanted that, but the reality of it was those people didn't exist. It became so. I mean, the thought of a drum kit would keep me up at night. You know, the sort of. <laughs> Drummer fiddling around and putting it together, and then of course you've got to be in a band with the drummer, yeah, which is uh, a nightmare. So, <laughs> really, it's a nightmare to be in a band with a drummer. Huh? As a drummer, well, I think, I'll try not to take offense in a to way, that. Uh, in a way, that's the sort of that's that's the you know the that's the punk ethic for me was that mm-hmm. we really we were forced forced into a drum machine by by the lack of sophistication. Same with you know the blues; it was just easy playing. With one guitar, you know, your thumb doing the bass parts and the rest of your fingers doing the melodies. It's kind of, that's that's where blues started. It was just, we've got the most simple, basic things around, so we're just going to play with our souls, you know. You mentioned uh, the whole issue of sort of being a stripped-down thing, and obviously it's it's grown to some pretty big places. I remember seeing you guys at Lollapalooza, Coachella, where you have this presence on the stage, which is pretty remarkable for just two people. But it did start in a much smaller place, and the story goes, Allison, that you financed the first tour with a credit card. Yeah, we did use a credit card. Yeah. I don't think it was mine. I think it was my friend. Yeah. My friend got me a credit card in my name. Uh-huh. I didn't have a credit card till 2004. And after that, I didn't have a credit card for a long time. I think it was just a borrowed kind of... Right. Um, no, you know, that, that tour was... It was amazing. It took six months to book because, you know, we were back again to, like, handwritten letters, and we didn't have a band name when we started booking that tour. People were letting us come and play their clubs on the bike because I drew a picture, or, you know, we just hand-wrote a letter or whatever, and mm-hmm. and we got there, and it started to work out. I bought a car from my dad. He's a car dealer. Well, that's the thing. It was, really, it it was really hand-to-mouth, you know. We played, our first show, was we, we played in Gainesville, which was close to uh, Allison's mum dad's house, mm-hmm. so we played, we got a lift there or drove mm-hmm. there yeah. played Gainesville got enough money to play the next show and we mm-hmm. did it like that we went around the country doing that Allison, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that you took a little hiatus and jumped in with a band called Dead Weather with Jack White. It was sort of an accident from what I can tell, and you did two albums within the space of a year. So what was that experience like? You're working with another very strong figure there in Jack White. Um, it was a well it was a good experience because it was a really different kind of band, you know, something I hadn't really done before. It's very spontaneous, very fast, mm-hmm. loud, crazy, kind of unpredictable sort of band that never we never planned to be in and it just happened kind of like that so such a different setup you know so many more instruments so many more people on stage so much more gear everywhere mm. yeah yeah <laughs> a drummer yeah 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 I love you so much
right, so you guys are going to play us another song. We're here in the studio with the Kills, Allison Mosshart, Jamie Hintz. Uh, tell us what you're going to play, and tell us how this one came together. Um, this one's... We're going to play Baby Says, which was a kind of... Came, came about relatively easily. Um, one of those things that people... When people say a song wrote itself, I suppose that's the closest on this record that I got to that. I mean, it's just an ode to death and romance, like most things I write. <laughs> oh, With a bit of atheism thrown in there. But, um, yeah, it's a love song, of course. <laughs>
Baby says from the kills on Sound Opinions live. It's incredible to see you guys because there's a obviously there's an energy there and an attitude that comes across a swagger, dare I say. But w- what's the reality of it? I think a big we hate each other. Yeah, <laughs> not doing this anymore. No, it's quite funny. There's a sort of psychic thing I think when 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 there's two people in a band, especially with us. It's quite. There's just sit down and stare at each other and just sort of play to each other, you know, and it's kind of, it's almost like sort of begging this intense sort of voodoo electricity between us. When we just played Baby Says and we both got the first verse wrong <laughs> together, you know, both saying the, the wrong word and it was the same word. But it, I, I'm quite fascinated by that. That's amazing. You talk about the idea of space, and I think that's a big part of it, is that you create this space where it's, you're not playing out to the audience so much as you're drawing them in to you, because I notice a lot when you're playing together on stage, you guys are looking at each other as opposed to projecting out, you know, doing a Freddie Mercury thing and everybody up there in the third balcony having a good time. You know, it's it's yeah, not, it's we not don't about that kind of talk to the audience so much, but I do think we project. I do think that we look at the audience. Mm-hmm. I know that's changed a bit because when we first started playing, we did not take our eyes off each other. We did not engage with the audience. We didn't look out. I mean, it really. That's just something that's kind of. I don't know, you know, throughout playing thousands of shows, mm-hmm. it changes. Yeah. You have to keep pushing yourself. You have to do different things every time, you know? Yeah, but I know where, where Greg was going. I mean, there's that, uh, if you ever see video footage of, like, when Lee Hazelwood and Nancy Sinatra did their thing, mm-hmm. or, or Jane Birkin and Serge Gainsbourg, you mm-hmm. know, it's almost like, you know, we're inviting you into this this couple, this duo, this partnership, you know? Yeah. It's something very intimate about it. I think when you have a man and a woman on stage together, you immediately feel like you're spying if you're the audience, and that's so cool. I think you know. Yeah. Well, you have another song for us, or yeah, what do you want to do half off? Yeah. Doing crazy, you fancy doing it? Sure. Cool. This is a cover version. It was written by uh, Willie okay. Nelson. It's called Crazy. <laughs> Crazy, I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. I'm crazy, crazy for feeling so Crazy. 
crying and crazy for crying and I'm crazy Kills with a awesome. cover of Willie Nelson's "Crazy." Now that's you know obviously it's a great song, right? But there's no hint of the homicidal maniac that may just be lurking there when Willie does it. And there is, however subtly, you guys brought it in via the guitar and just the vocal. It's just there's a little suddenly crazy is kind of threatening in the hands of the Kills. Yeah, Patsy Cline didn't sound quite like that when she did it. No, a little straighter. Well, I wanted to. Have you heard that that, uh, that Peggy Lee song? Um, is that all there is? Oh yeah! Oh, yeah. oh my yeah. God! Yeah. I just, I really want to do that. Actually. We should do that. Yeah. I'm hearing a little bit of Peggy Lee in this record, Alison. I don't know about it, but it seems like maybe you've been listening to some of that I stuff too. <laughs> really? Yeah, I haven't, but mm-hmm. I will today. All right. Well, there you go. <laughs> Jamie Hintz, Alison Mossart of the Kills. Thank you so much for being our guests on Sound Opinions. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. If that's all there is. We've got video of the Kills performing Crazy and their other songs at soundopinions.org. And we want to remind you to share your sound opinions on the air. Call 888-859-1800. Greg and I will return after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX with reviews of the new albums by Madonna and Dr. John. You went away, and I thought I'd die, but I didn't. And when I didn't, I said to myself, Is that all there is to love? Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep... I know what you must be saying to yourselves. If that's the way she feels about it, why doesn't she just end it all? Oh, no, not me. I'm not ready for that final disappointment Because I know Just as well as I'm standing here talking to you That when that final moment comes And I'm breathing my last breath I'll be saying to myself Is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is So erratic
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. You're listening to a tune called Girl Gone Wild, the new single from the 12th album by Madonna, M-D-N-A, which of course is kind of Madonna with several letters removed, but also perhaps a reference to the drug M-D-M-A or ecstasy, popular in dance culture. Greg, do we even have to introduce this woman, this native of Detroit? 300 million albums sold worldwide in a career that will now span 30 years. Her debut album in 1983, she's had some news. She's 53 years old now. What is she bringing into the studio to record this 12th album? She's been divorced. Guy Ritchie, her British film director husband, that marriage ended at the end of 2008. She signed a deal worth $120 million just a few years ago with Live Nation, the giant corporate, the courts say not a monopoly, and she left the Warner Brother family and her boutique label, Maverick Records, for Interscope Records. A lot of anticipation whenever Madonna releases an album, but especially with these kind of mega deals, this giant three-album recording deal and this giant Live Nation deal. Some people in the industry are saying Madonna has made an album just so she can tour. Other people are saying, a new Madonna record? How exciting. Let's not talk about it anymore. She's one of the 25 most powerful women in the world, according to Time magazine. Is she still making good art at age 53? This is a track called Love Spent, by Madonna from the new MDNA album. We'll come back and give our reviews on Sound Opinions. That is Love Spent from Madonna, album number 12, MDNA. Jim, I think the big number you brought up in your intro, 30 years. No other dance pop figure that I can think of has been at it as long as Madonna has. I mean, in a lot of ways. yeah. Yeah, in a lot of ways. This career defies expectations. She's been defying them ever since she started. They said, oh, she's a one-hit wonder. Oh, she's a one-album wonder. Oh, this MTV stuff is going to fade, and she's going to fade into obscurity. She hasn't. Well, there is the fact that she can barely sing. (laughs) 
Well, she's overcome a lot of obstacles, and in terms of just ambition and work ethic, I think very few artists of, of any time can match what she's done. The art is a totally different question, and obviously that's what we're focused on here. I think a lot of the arguments tossed at this record have been directed at the whole idea, well, she's not innovating anymore. She's not on the cutting edge. She hasn't been on the cutting edge for a decade. I mean, get over it. She's basically ceded control of the cutting edge to the Lady Gagas and the Keshas and the Rihannas of the world. She's a heritage artist. People are interested in what she has to say about Madonna in a way that, say, they aren't about Kesha. With Madonna, there's a life here, there's a substance here that maybe some of these artists don't have. I think she's better when she's bringing some of that personality into focus. She hasn't for about a a decade. On this album, I think she finally does. The big topic here is, you know, obviously the dissolution of her marriage. You mentioned that earlier as well and also the reunion with producer William Orbit. I think the last great Madonna album was Ray of Light, and I think it was a truly landmark record in the dance pop realm in that it combined these introspective elements with a dance vibe, and Orbit does that for her again on this record. Unfortunately, he doesn't produce the entire record. Therefore, I think it's about a split difference on this record. The the up-tempo dance tracks don't really work, but the more introspective stuff does. I'm going to give it a burn-it rating. Greg, I disagree. You know, we've had this fight before. You've accused me of being nothing short of foolish for criticizing Madonna's lyrics. But let me explain one more time. I think what was phenomenal about this artist when she was at her best, that 92-96 period sex, erotica, bedtime stories, is there was a conceptual strength in the button pushing along with the musical excellence. The music has faded somewhat. What has she got to say at age 53, even after a divorce? She wants to bang bang shoot my lover in the head. She wants everybody to L-U-V Madonna, love Madonna. She's still a bad girl. It's like, hey, you're Lord as his mom. Mm. You tell me a hundred times on this record you're a bad girl. And not only that, but she rips off Cindy Lauper and says girls just want to have fun. I've always had problems with her voice. I know it's not the centerpiece of this kind of electronic dance music. I'd rather listen to the great house artists who could sing. But this protestations of I want to be a bad girl and then starting the album with an act of contrition. Oh, my God, I am heartily sorry for having offended thee. No, you're not. You're still playing this this bad Catholic schoolgirl, except now you're older than Mother Superior, the nun who runs the convent, you know? That's all i got to say. It's a trash it record, Greg. But we want to hear from people, pro or con. What did you think of the new Madonna? Give us a call on the Sound Opinions hotline, 888-859-1800. Blind eyes of justice. That is Dr. John with a track called Revolution from his new album, Locked Down. Dr. John, a.k.a. Mac Rebenick, born in 1940 in New Orleans. What a character. A great session musician in the late 50s and throughout the 60s. Came out to L.A., was kind of one of the the go-to piano players on a lot of recording sessions during that era. 
and then reinvented himself as Dr. John the Night Tripper for a landmark 1968 debut album, Gree Gree, in which he created this combination of a, a medicine show kind of character, a Mardi Gras costumed doctor, a voodoo ceremony presider, uh, melding it with New Orleans <laughs> rhythm and blues and soul, unlike anything else in that psychedelic era. Now, John kept toggling back and forth between this character that he created on Gree Gree and more conventional, straight-ahead New Orleans stuff. In the last few years, the last couple of decades, really, the more conventional stuff has started to dominate his material. But now he's gone back to an interesting area. He has revived the Dr. John character on lockdown, and he's also recording with one of his biggest fans, the Black Keys Dan Arbach, who is the producer on this record, recorded this entire album with a hand-picked set of young musicians to work with Dr. John in his Nashville studio and came up with the album called Lockdown. Here's a track from it. We're going to review it in a minute. It's called Ice Age on Sound Opinions. That is Dr. John from his new album, Lockdown, on Sound Opinions. The song is called Ice Age. And man, that slinky bass and those African drums. Elsewhere on this record, Greg, I don't know if I've ever heard the trashy Farfisa organ sound better. You know, I just did a Desert Island Jukebox pick not long ago on the show from the Gree Gree album. I love Dr. John. Aside from one track he recorded a few years ago with Spiritualized, the great English psychedelic man, I kind of had, had given up on him going back to that early 70s swamp psychedelia sound. Auerbach clearly loves it. He brings it to the front here. It's wonderful. Dr. John's getting old. The voice ain't quite as wonderfully mysterious and hypnotic as it was, but it's close. This is I love this album. The vibe is unparalleled for fans of Dr. John. They'll love it. It'll take them back to Grigri in that period. And for, for new initiates who may be coming from the superstar success of the Black Keys, I think they'll, they'll take a lot away from this album. It's a buy it on the buy it burn a trash at scale. 
I give Arbeck a lot of credit, Jim, for uh, taking Dr. John back to this place. Obviously, he's a fan. He's not only a fan, but he's a connoisseur. He knows what Dr. John does best. Well, and he's letting John sing in Creole on that song, Allegua. Well, not only that, he's taking him out of his comfort zone. I mean, Dr. John is a great piano player, obviously, but he falls into a lot of those Professor Longhair-style vamps when he does the piano. He's got him playing organs and octagons and all these weird vintage keyboards on this record, which is really cool. It gives him that swampy, psychedelic thing that you're talking about. These oddball keyboards really add to the atmosphere of this record. So he's away from the New Orleans party music, the tourist trap R&B that he'd been falling into in recent decades, and, and more into this really deep psychedelic stuff. There's some really personal material on this record, like My Children, My Angels, and God Sure Good. But the stuff I love the best is the stuff where he's just into this zone of speaking in tongues almost, like that medicine doctor is back out, and he regains that psychedelic mystery about those classic early Dr. John records. It's a buy it all the way. So that's two enthusiastic buy it's for Dr. John. Greg, what's on the show next week? Jim, next week we're going to look at Aretha Franklin at the height of her gospel glory. Greg, we have some thank yous to say. Mary Gaffney and Andrew Gill helped us in the studio with the kills. Sound Opinions is produced by Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana with the able assistance of Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia, the Roger Sterling of this crew, and he does a mean Frere Jaca. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Come on, Anna. Answer your phone. Answer your phone. Pick up the receiver. I know that you're at home. New messages. Hey, the name's Jarvis. Uh, I was at South by Southwest this year and I saw... Quite possibly the best punk slash hardcore group I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, they go by the name of Trash Talk. They're from the Bay. They're all down to earth dudes, but I mean, the music they make is so powerful. I know you mentioned Ceremony on the show. Very similar. While Ceremony has softened this, uh, this band Trash Talk has only picked it up in intensity, and they're definitely worth checking out. I look forward to hearing more, and uh, as always, great show. Adios. guys, how you doing? Uh, 12-string Frank calling from Staten Island, New York. Well, I just heard your report uh, from the South by Southwest Festival, and uh, you mentioned this band, The Cloud Nothings. Now I understand from hearing them why they use the word nothing in their name. They are horrible. I can't believe you put that on your best list. Nothing but droning. Uh, uh, uh. You, you, I mean, you like that. You don't mention great musicians. But you, you have to mention garbage like the, the cloud nothing. You kidding me? Look, guys, there's a new album coming up from Jethro Tull. Thick as a brick part, too. I would really appreciate if you guys could listen to it 
and review it, even if you didn't like it. Well, thanks for listening to my uh, message, guys. Talk to you later. Hi, my name is Stuart, and I'm calling from New York City. I was so happy to hear about the DBs playing the South by Southwest Festival. I remember hearing the DBs on college radio when those first two albums came out. Saw them live in some place in Manhattan. I can't even remember where. The DBs are like the distant relatives of Big Star with the power pop. I'm so happy they're back. Thank you very much. I don't enjoy you. Hi, this is Kathy from Portland, Oregon. I'm just calling to comment about the uh, review on the Shin's new album. I have to agree with Greg. I think it's really overproduced. Simple song does not sound like a simple song at all. Like the Shin's are trying to be the who. And I miss the cryptic lyrics also. That's one of the things that I love about the Shin's. I don't want them to be dumbed down and unpoetic. Thanks for listening and love the show. Hi, this is Jan calling from Chicago. I was glad that Jim gave the new Shins album a positive review. Although I must admit that I'm a little disappointed by the album. Uh, it's a bit of a letdown following Wincing the Night Away, which is one of the best albums of all time as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I never heard uh, you guys review that particular album. I'm not sure what your opinion of it is, but it's got moments in it that are just transcendent. And uh, this new album, unfortunately, doesn't quite reach that level, but it's still a solid uh, effort by the Shin. So thanks for your review and thanks for your show. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.